0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows
2: where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
3: This podcast is powered by Acast.
2: How's it going there? It's David. It's podcast time. John is very excited about vaccines. He's very, very excited about the prospect of uh, the world changing profoundly. He's a believer in 2021. He's not a believer in 2020. How are you, Ed? I'm good, but you know what my big problem is? I
3: have a fear of needles, like a genuine fear of needles. I can't even watch it on the TV. If, if, you know, if there's injection going on the TV, I have to turn away. So... It's great news the vaccine is is in the post. But, uh, yeah. You know, you should be French. Huh? They put all
2: their drugs up your arse. Ooh. <laughs> no, I have a fear of that too. <laughs> listen, you don't have to tell the whole world about it. We can go to a, you know, you can confess all sorts of things. But in actual fact, that's true though in France. What are they called? Uh, sort of, uh, it's sore. I think uh, they call no, them no, no. sore. Suppositories. Oh, yes, yeah, so- That's how the French actually give most of their medicine. Just so you know, John, all right, the podcast gives, go you, to France, so. God gives, gives you all sorts of things. You don't want it in your arm, you want it up your arse. There you go. How are you doing there? It is the podcast. I know it's a serious thing. We're going to talk about economics, but John has difficulties with the vaccine. John, this week's news on the vaccine is really big deal. And I know it's about a week old. Yeah. But it strikes me that the single biggest change in the economic environment and outlook for the next three or four years is this vaccine. Well, this is what we've been waiting for. And not just this vaccine, but we know that there are going to be competitor vaccines. We know that the whole pharmaceutical industry has been working on this for the last eight months. And fascinatingly, and we'll talk about the vaccine in a second, but fascinatingly and importantly, it's two Turkish immigrants who came up with the vaccine. And you right, know at the moment, yeah. you know, there's all this talk about immigration, and whatever. You know, Steve Jobs was from Syria. He was a Syrian, his fa- dad was a Syrian immigrant. Yeah. These people are Syrians at the cutting edge of what I would call the human instinct to strive comes from an urge of trying to make yourself better. Trying to better, trying to have a, a better gig then your family, and then their family. And again, what you see here, it's two German technicians, scientists, but they were originally Turkish. Their parents arrived in the late 60s, yeah. couldn't speak German, were regarded as second-class citizens in Germany, as we know, and yet their kids are the ones, like Steve Jobs, that just... And you think about it, Larry Page, Sergey Brin. Sergei Brin was born in Russia The head of Google, right? He's a Russian immigrant. You know, you see it all the time. It's an extraordinary story. But it it, it,
3: is, yeah. But it's the migrant attitude has that kind of. Once you go away, you're on your own. You have to survive. So there's a different kind of mindset, which gives you more of a drive and a resilience because you are on your own. Yeah.
2: No, it's true. And and I don't want to talk about Brexit today because it's going on all around us. But you know, one of the fatal flaws in the Brexit plan. Is this anti-immigration thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You, know, that you put that you put white culture over and above the gorgeous soup, jigsaw, melange, whatever you're talking that is multiculturalism. Yeah. Because multiculturalism produces these fantastic people and produces vaccines.
3: Yeah. But come here, tell us. I mean, it's brilliant news that the vaccine is on the way and there are going to be more than just the Pfizer vaccine.
2: You know the other great thing about, what's the Pfizer's other great product? Viagra! Viagra! <laughs> so you got a kind of a vaccine and a bit of Viagra as well. <laughs> yeah, do you know, just I a, to balance it do out. You know, I have a mate of mine who was talking to me years ago. Do you remember about 10 years ago? It doesn't, it's not anymore, right? Remember you go to a soccer match or a rugby match, right? Yeah. In Dublin. Yeah. And there'd be Alwyn's selling Twixes and cans of Coke. Yeah. And anyone hats or scarves yeah. and a few cans of Coke? Mates of mine were going to a rugby match recently. Hats or scarves, cans of Coke. And Viagra, the Alwans were selling (laughs) for the weekend.
3: (laughs) So for the weekend. Exactly.
2: But isn't that brilliant that Alwans were selling Viagra outside Lansdowne Road? I thought they were just blue smarties. To to rugby lads whose peckers were not going to work after 20 pints. But there you go.
3: Come here to me. So it's great news with the vaccine, but there's a whole load of implications for things like the economy, as you said, for migration, For investment policy, you know, talk us through some of those. I mean,
2: the, the first thing is let's step back, right? What I think is that in general, the economics profession and the forecasters haven't taken on board the significance of this. And the reason they haven't done is because in a lot of ways, economic models and economic forecasting, John, mm. is very, very what they call static. It's not dynamic. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't take in all the variables. So if you think this is such a game changer. So for example, up until last week or two weeks ago, lots of people were saying, well, will there be a vaccine? Will there not? I'm not too sure. Will it work? Will it not? Etc." Now we have Evidence that this thing works, right? Yeah. So that suddenly changes twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two in a dramatic way. In a way, the pandemic is over. I mean, I know this might sound premature, but there is light bit. at the end of the tunnel. Like, yeah, if yeah. the vaccines work, then very soon COVID becomes a thing of the past. Yeah. It was an unusual experience, but it's something that we dealt with. Yeah. In fact, in fact, science triumphed. Right. Now, if that is the background noise. the economy in 2021, then I believe that what is going to happen is the economy all around the world is going to surge in a way in which you never imagined. And the reason is the following, right? That, and it's quite interesting, I've always compared the economy to a living organism, right? So if you think the most complex living organism, or one of them, is us, right? And therefore, the immune system in us is a great, Expression of what I would call an adaptive complex system. So the immune system adapts all the time. Mm, yeah, so yeah, and yeah. the economy adapts all the time. There's a great, there's a great actually book that I'm reading at the moment by a fellow called Daniel Davis. Oh, okay. Could yeah. be a relation of yours? Oh uh, yeah. Called I'd say The Compatibility he is. Gene. And it's about how the immune system works. But the first chapter is about an extraordinary fellow called Peter Medawar, okay. who was a British but originally Lebanese immigrant scientist, right? And his great, one of his great ideas was that everyone's immune system is different. So he was involved in skin grafting for RAF pilots that were burnt in the Second World War. That was his job, right? He was a dermatologist in the beginning. And what he found was something very unusual about skin grafting, which people at the time couldn't figure out, was that if You grafted skin from another person onto an injured person. Yeah. The body eventually rejected the skin of the other person. Yeah. So they thought, why is this? What is going on? And what his big insight was that every one of us, every single one of us has a genetic code that our immune system understands, and we reject the outsider. So we can only get skin grafted from ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. So if you take it a little bit, let's say I have a burn injury. You take a bit from my shin and my thigh, it might work. But if I take a bit from you, it won't work because our body recognizes that your genetic code is different. So his idea was to say to people, everyone's immune system is completely different. So the body is this extraordinarily adaptive system. And if you think of the immune system and how it reacts, so the immune system identifies an invader, then, like a big sort of, almost like a big Google search, it searches like the immune system. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Chuck, 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 have I seen this thing before? Have I seen? Yes, I've seen yeah. something that looks like this. Then it calls upon the antibodies to say, "Go and fight this." Then you fight it. Then the immune system transfers that information back to you, and you become immune.
3: Yeah, so sticks it's, it in the library.
2: It's yeah, like it's it's like a it's like a massive big library. Okay, but everyone's immune system is unique, and this is what I find fascinating. Now, take that idea. And think about the economy and think about how the economy grows, John. And how the economy grows is that every invention, every innovation, every big surge in technology in humanity is like that big library. It goes into the library. And then, you know, that expression standing on the shoulders of giants, you take that bit and you say, innovation is not invention. Innovation is the process whereby we put two things together that didn't look as if they belonged together. And they become together. Yeah. Right. And I've been forming reading something new. Forming something new. I've been reading about the printing press. Gutenberg, okay. right? Yeah. And what really intrigues me about the printing press is not the printing, but it's the press bit. Go like on. Gutenberg's big invention in Mainz in 1400 and whatever he was, right? Was he used to work in a wine pressing machine, right? Okay. So if you look at like so Mainz is that part of Germany where the Mosel River flows into the Rhine River, okay? okay. Mosul is where the Germans make all their wines because yeah. the Romans brought vines there thousands of yeah, years yeah. ago, right? Of course, Gutenberg was trying to figure out how can we make this print? We figured out the ink, we figured out the paper, we figured out the little figurines, but what we can't do is we can't figure out how we press it all in a uniform way to make the print not run. And he, his okay. eureka moment was we should use the presses that we crush the wines with. And that's okay. like, so you get right, this beautiful right, right. idea. So this guy worked as a wine merchant, Gutenberg, yeah. in the beginning, right? And you could see how they made Brilliant. wine and thought, it's the press that is the thing that we're missing. And therefore, they used to make a huge big corkscrews. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so he went and he commissioned wine pressers that used to make Pinot Noir. And he said, screw that, man. Let's make Bibles. It'll be much more profitable. Yeah. And that's why it came from the Rhineland and nowhere else, because they were making Brilliant. wine. So my point about... Love that. Yeah, so my point... Isn't good, isn't it? Yeah, it's My great. point about all innovations is it comes from something else, and the economy adapts like a living organism. And once you've made... Like the immune system, once you've actually identified wine pressing, that's in the library of humanity. Yeah, and we move on from there. Yeah. And we might come back to it. We might, and and the then immune, we
3: tweak it and improve
2: and it. And the then. immune system is the same thing. Once we identify this COVID thing, it's in the system, it's in the library, it's in the search engine. Yeah. And you type it in. Like, can you imagine like, like the immune system is like us typing to Google. Chica, chica, chica. And the Google search engine goes, okay, that's the best fit. And the best fit is the way in which the immune system works, but it's also the way in which the economy works.
3: The economy. Works. So talk to me then about, about the economy then and, and how that's so the implications yeah. of this.
2: So therefore, the excitement that this will engender in us, mm. in everybody, I'm going to go out, I'm going to spend, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, will have a much greater impact, I believe, in 2021 on the economy mm. than the mainstream economic forecasters are saying. They say, well, it might work, it might not work, etc. I think it, if it works, the economy's, not only this year, over the next five or six years, will display enormous energy. And maybe the historical example is the 1920s. Yeah, but okay, hang on a sec, Mark. Before we get
3: there, the one thing that worries me about all this is the anti-vaxxers, which seems to be a growing number. You know, particularly in, in America with their kind of the anti-science movement, which I find frightening and bewildering at the same time. But there are a number of, of people who are just going, no way, I'm not touching that stuff.
2: You know what I find? So the anti-vaxxer, so if you're anti-vax, mm. what you believe is you believe in your immune system. Because, or, or you just don't believe in science. Or you don't believe in science. But think about what a vaccine is. Yeah. A vaccine is to your immune system. What speed dating is to slow sets. (laughs) Right? Remember slow sets. I sure do. This one's for you, Tommy. Remember the the long, arduous process of the slow set. You didn't have red hair as a kid, so you don't know the trauma (laughs) of the slow set, right? Contrast JM's generation of speed daters to our generation of slow setters.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
2: the millennials... It's putting a lot of work. There's no spade work going in for the millennials, right? They're Tinder. It's it's basically Tinder versus slow set. Yes or no,
3: yes or no, yes or no, yes or no.
2: (laughs) But think of this world, Tinder versus the slow set. The slow set is this long process whereby you eventually either become Im- immune or yeah. you fight the invader or you accept the invader. Think about it, right? Those guys short circuit that great historical human yeah. endeavor. Because they're building on the shoulders of giants. Oh exactly. <laughs> but the vaccine's the same thing. So imagine the vaccine is the speed data. Yeah. And the immune system is the slow set. Yeah. And basically what The vaccine does is it accelerates the process whereby the immune system goes to work. That's all it is. So what I can't understand about the anti-vaxxers is all we're saying is this is a quicker way of doing the same thing. It's a scientific way of nudging your immune system into activity, into reactivity, into actually doing what you already believe the natural world allows your immune system to do. It's a strange one. I know your yeah I, I, with slow sexes.
3: Is- <laughs> I didn't have a good record. But it's like your man, what was his name? Was it Wakefield? The guy who wrote that paper about kids' vaccinations being linked to autism. The MMR. The MMR, that's yeah. what it was. And it was subsequently absolutely dismissed as complete nonsense, which it is. But that is, did a huge amount of damage, and the echoes of that are still... Oh, yeah. The legacy sti- of
2: that is is, is still there. You, you're absolutely right. It, you know, it did a huge amount of damage. I believe, now, maybe I'm wrong, because I think that people need to freely buy into something. But there is an argument. Ah, these, there is an argument to say that vaccination should be compulsory. Absolutely. I don't like go along your, with this. Sending your kids is compulsory yeah. to school. Yeah. You know, you can't opt out. Yeah. And
3: kids who aren't vaccinated should not be allowed to go to school, I believe. I'm quite strong on this one. I mean, have a look at at what happened a couple of years ago in France when a lot of the anti-vaxxers stopped vaccinating against uh, mumps and rubella. And there was a huge outbreak. And, of course, you know, the side effects to a lot of these diseases, if you get through it, like serious side effects... You know, the whole idea of herd immunity with vaccination is that you need to pass a certain threshold, which I think is something around 90%. So if you're kind of on this conspiracy theory, I'm not yeah. taking that vaccination because it's Bill Gates is is vaccinating us. You know, yeah. this kind of nonsense that you hear, particularly in America. I Bill Gates think, is a lizard from Mars. Yeah, all yeah. that kind of stuff. I think is the most incredibly selfish yeah. thing that they could do.
2: I think it's really selfish. And I mean, the reason there is a threshold, John, is that all these diseases, they're very clever, actually, these type of diseases, these crowd diseases, mm. they enlist us as their artillery to invade others. So consequently, they can only spread if there are enough susceptible people exactly. who don't have it. Yeah. So you need to get to a threshold in yeah. order for the disease to die on its own. Yeah. You know, so, but taking that as it is, The vaccine will change the economy. And I really think that a model for the energy and effervescence could be the 1920s. So you come out of the flu pandemic, Mm. the Spanish flu, you go into a decade in the United States, for example, where you get electricity for the first time. You get the Model T Ford. You get the radio. Think about this. You get television. You get telephone. You get airlines, air travel. All this profoundly changed the the society in one decade. And what you have is there's a certain liberation from the end of a pandemic that people say, let's have a go. Yeah. Let's go for it. So my sense is that we should be very, very enthusiastic about the possibilities of the next year or two if this vaccine works and then we roll it out and everybody who needs to get it gets it and we do it properly. And if that's the case... I don't think right now the economics profession has quite nailed how uplifting and how significant this could be.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away.
1: Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
3: A couple of weeks ago, we had our Israeli friend and our Swedish friend, the scientists talking about COVID and how they're dealing with COVID in Israel and Sweden from two ends of the spectrum.
2: But actually, Ireland is doing pretty well now. We're we're doing... It seems the lockdown here is working really very well. Yeah, yeah. And what you see is our rates are falling quite substantially and progressively. But what is worrying is that outside of this island, COVID is going through the roof. France, Germany, Italy... The UK. The UK is the gone. UK 50,000 deaths. Yeah. And the way in which we could look at this is if all the rest of the world, so we're little small island, right, is deteriorating, it means all the emergency economic levers that were put in place to deal with this yeah. are going to last for a longer time. So the it's first... Good news for us. It's very good news for us. So the yeah. first four or five months of next year are going to be still what I would call traumatic economics, right? The economics of COVID. Yeah. And last week what you saw something extraordinary was the ECB. Again, Lagarde comes out as the boss of the ECB, and she said the ECB has already, think of this, already lent 1.5 trillion euros to the European banking system at rates as low as minus 1%. So a trillion... Is a million million. So this is one with twelve zeros after it. And you know I always like to do this calculation, right? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. But I'll
2: on. give you, I'll give you that calculation, right? Sure. How big when you get your head around one and a half trillion. Yeah. If you were to spend a million dollars a day, or Euros a day. Yeah. Imagine the crack. Imagine <laughs> the mental crack, right? Yeah. Okay? Imagine bars <laughs> and restaurants were open and you and I was it would take us. 4,109 years, spending one million euros a day to spend one and a half trillion euros. Wow. So that's how much You'd be worn money, out at the end of uh, You'd be worn <laughs> <laughs> yes, out. would be ruined at the end of That's how much money ECB has lent to the banks. Now the question is, where, where is it, right? Yeah. So how much of that is going to Ireland? Well, what are we getting out of that? What's our split, that? man? So, if the Irish banks were to be borrowing, the proportion of the European banking system that we are, which is about five percent, so we're our economy is about five percent of the e the euro right. economy. Right? Okay. okay. So, working off that, we're talking about one, We're talking about one and a half million millions. We're talking about five or six percent of that, which is about 9,000 million, so nine billion. 9 billion, billion. Okay. euros should be... Slashing has been, around. ...has been made available to the Irish banks, if they want it. Yeah. And rates, think about it, rates as low as a minus 1%. Right. To lend to the Irish economy. So, so Forget all the government grants, forget all that sort of stuff. Right? Yeah. The question is, where the fuck is it? <laughs> uh, you talk to any small business, they can't get a loan. Even worse, John, I was reading in the paper this week that the Irish banks were saying, well, we are prepared for bad loans. How the fuck can you have bad loans when you have $9 available at minus 1% interest rate? You cannot have... What
3: what is going on here, then? So,
2: basically, what what most small businesses want is interest-only, is a moratorium on their debt, right? Yeah. So, basically, they have, like, an interest-only mortgage, right? And they want to say to the banks... Do you have this money? And the ECB has already said, well, yes, the Irish banks have, if they were going to take out, yeah. $9 billion. $9 billion would be enough to solve all our problems. Yeah. But You talk to small businesses, they say they can't get money. You talk to the Irish banking system, and it's saying we're preparing for bad loans. So think about the logic of this, right? The Irish banking system is preparing for bad loans. That means our policy. Yeah. Pascal Donoghue's policy yeah. is... We will allow good companies to go bust because they don't have cash flow. Then those bad loans will be on the Irish banking system. Then the way it works is the Irish banking system will sell those loans backed by those assets. So let's say you're a hotel yeah. and you have a loan. It goes bad. What backs the loan is the collateral of the hotel, the building, etc. Yeah, yeah. The Irish banks will sell those assets loans at a discount to vulture funds, remember our friends yeah, from a few yeah, years yeah. ago, Yeah, they will warehouse the loans because they can sit in those loans because they have money and they will sell those loans back to a new hotelier in four or five years when the economy recovers and they will take a twist in the middle. The Irish policy, therefore, is absolutely about enriching vulture funds who can opportunistically right now take those loans because they have the capital and penalising Irish small business, all being done through the Irish banking system of which one of the banks, AIB, the biggest bank in the country, so nice. we own.
3: Yeah, I know. That's... Can
2: you think about how crazy it is? Whereas what they could be doing is go straight to the ECB, issue an Irish government debt, take X amount of that nine billion and drop it into the economy in helicopter money. Give it to the people so the people don't go bust. Yeah. So there is no bad loans. So the economy thrives and we move on. So is this a classic
3: case of a good policy badly executed or just...
2: A good policy, not even badly executed, John. A good policy offered to people who don't understand what's being offered to them. That's even worse. The Department of Finance and the central bank don't actually understand what the ECB is trying to do. So the ECB is trying to say, we want to prevent mass bankruptcy... Because we know that bankruptcy is contagious. So if you're a small business and you go bust, then you don't pay your supplier. That supplier doesn't pay his supplier or her supplier, and you get this downward spiral. So the ECB is saying, in order to prevent that, we're going to give you all the money you need. Yeah. And we can forget about it because, you know what, we're going to give it to you at minus 1%. So we're taking the risk on our balance sheet, the ECB. Mm. Think about it, right? So what they're saying is, don't wait for companies to go bust. Give them the money now, whichever way you can, to stop this process, to stop vulture funds making a fortune, to stop the banks not doing their job. And I think the best way to crystallize this conversation is let's actually talk to somebody who is at the coalface trying to survive. An old mate of ours who runs a hotel, yep. Dan Dunleary, employs a lot of people, is trying to get through this, See what his reality is, and the difference between the rhetoric of the government and the reality of small business. Uh, just a little bit of background: John and I were brought up on the same road as uh, as, as you've known for many years. People listening to the podcast, a long time. <laughs> and on the road, it was the almost your right was to have a nickname. Now the nickname was a term of endearment. He's JD, but I never call him that. Uh, but, but it was everybody- Bill Kenny who christened me JD. Late, later doors then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was, yeah. And, but almost everyone had a nickname. Uh, and of course, I was Macker because anyone with a Mac, you know, it's a very most uninspired nickname. <laughs> but uh, down the road from us was a fellow whose name was actually David, who, I don't know how he managed to get lumbered with the nickname Fla. Now, to Fla, a Fla, he's a Fla, she's a Fla in Cork. Anybody from Cork will know exactly what it means. You're a Fla. Eh? You're a Fla, eh? Fla Larkin. Who runs the Haddington Hotel in Dunleary? How did you get the nickname Fla?
1: Oh, lads, that's a, that's a podcast in itself. But uh, in, in short, <laughs> it's pretty boring. But a guy called Kieran Madden, who we both know,
2: whose nickname uh, we, is Cheers, man.
1: by the way. Cheers. He's
2: not known came, as Kieran, his name <laughs> is Cheers, right?
1: Came back from an under 12 CBC Cork match uh, and uh, discovered what Fla means in Cork. And bizarrely gave it to me. And I think I must have been about eight. So no relevance to what it actually means. You embraced it, Fla.
2: You embraced it. And you're now known as Fla. Yes. Yes. Your kids call you Fla?
1: My kids call me Fla. My friends call me Fla. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's stuck. And
2: are you known (laughs) as Fla in the hotel?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love or Flavio it. in Italian.
2: Flavio. <laughs> it's like somebody in Cork
1: because, you know, a on the Italian side of Windsor. You know.
2: Anyway, Flat, let's talk about yeah. what it's like. You're running the Haddington Hotel. I've been watching it for years. You took it over about five years ago. You've built it up. Good custom. Then COVID happens. Stopped. Cash flow is a problem. What is it like now for a small business hearing what the government is saying about grants and aids and assistance and contrasting that rhetoric with the actual fact the actuality of trying to survive
1: well the rhetoric is an issue and i'll come back to that but my narrative on it is essentially looking at covid one covid two which are still about survival and they're not really about recovery so there's no policy around how smes are going to recover out of this there's very little difference in COVID-1 and COVID-2. You know, we're closed. There's no cash flow coming in. So therefore, there's money going out, no money coming in, and you can do the maths. The only difference is that in COVID-1, there's a bit more credit in the bank. You know, there was wage supports were there, and I know they're still here. Grants were available, moratoriums, critically on banks and landlords, even on energy companies. For a hotel like ours, we would burn about 100 grand a year in energy. Uh, revenue was supportive. And then COVID-2 came along and we were closed again. And that's much tougher. But the environment is much more difficult because moratoriums are gone. Landlord pressure is back because landlords have to make money too. There's no forgiveness from energy companies. And therefore there's less on the credit side and there's a lot on the debit side. So the difference is that when we were going into COVID-2, there was a much greater tightening of of the wage support scheme. It went from a, a reasonably Generous wage support scheme, a blunt instrument in covid one probably too blunt, to a narrow focus around €203. But in addition to that, there was new demands from the revenue, which is around you need to be tax compliant, which, of course, everybody should be tax compliant, but everybody understands what tax certificate means. You also needed to to provide a lot more paperwork around it. And crucially, they extended out the weekly rebate to a six-week rebate period, which basically meant that businesses who were tight on cash flow had to survive six weeks paying gross wages before they got a rebate. And they had to be tax compliant, and they had to fill in a lot of paperwork. Uh, in one incident, we got paperwork from the revenue to verify that we were genuine. And we were given five days to return the paperwork. Now, I'm lucky, I have a finance department. But a small business is no one finance. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I began to form my own narrow opinion that there was a very Darwinian approach to filter out SMEs that were not going to survive. And it was just let them die. And that's a great concern to me because you know most businesses who went into COVID-1, got out, got into COVID-2, they're doing their damned to survive, but cash flow is the issue. But the government was increasing the pressure on cash flow by ensuring that everybody had to pay the wages, had six weeks to wait for the rebate to come back. And that's a significant change. In addition to all that, and I go back to the point you made at the start about rhetoric, lots and lots of governments come out, departments, especially Minister of Finance, with top-line numbers. So, when Dublin went into level three, the top line number is 150 million. We have 150 million supports. That's actually about seven and a half grand per kind of restaurant. It's not available yet, okay? Then there's the two billion in the budget of the credit guarantee scheme through the SBCR.
2: What is the SBCR again? Just explain so that
1: to me. The Chief Banking Corporation of Ireland is essentially what it is. And it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a targeted filter of European funds that essentially get funneled and channeled on through the pillar banks. It's a point you've raised in previous podcasts. And so essentially from the business, the SME uh, point of view, we still are dealing with a normal bank. We have to go through the bank credit review committee. And it's 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 an arduous task. It's very difficult. You know, going back to 2008, 9, 10, when there was very little discipline around loans, now there's the complete opposite. And it's very, very difficult to get loans through. So we, uh, the $2 billion credit guarantee scheme that was announced with a lot of fanfare, What's the reality? Last week, as all the papers reported, 44 million has been drawn down of the 2 billion.
2: So out of 2,000 million, 44 million mm-hmm. has been drawn down. So this, a is lim- a, this is a joke.
1: Yeah. So I'll give you a personal insight. So, one of the biggest problems that has not been sort of publicly announced is that you cannot avail of the SBCI loan by the pillar banks to refinance existing loans. Now, remember, this is about survival still. It's not a recovery-focused policy, which it should be. So, to survive, we need to basically refinance existing loans. Most SMEs use cash flow profits and bank borrowings to continue to grow their business. And I'm an extremely strong case on that. Now, they've come out with a dedicated COVID SBCI loan. But the problem is You can only avail that loan if, A, you were lent money in the middle of COVID, so by definition from March 18th onwards, or B...
2: hold on a second. Nobody was taking out loans in the middle of the first COVID, simply because everyone was petrified.
1: Yeah. So what they were giving out was some overdraft facilities. So when I questioned this at one of the pillar banks that I deal with, uh, the average uh, overdraft that was given out was 20 grand. And essentially what they're doing now is converting that 20 grand into an SBCI loan which is 80% backed by the government. And the overdrafts are disappearing. And so now it's all been wrapped up under the SBCI. So,
2: I I, if I can just stop you there. So what the government is actually doing, it's de-risking the banks and nothing else.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, but very small amounts still. But so, in very small amounts. Yeah. And, you know, if you read, uh, and I've spoken to the bank and you read the papers, they're incredulous that it's um, the take was so low. But... You either can refinance loans or you can get a with, with during COVID or you can get a loan to develop out a new area or a new business. You know, so it's 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 a new loan for a new a new feature. But there's very few people thinking about developing out or creating new products or services. What they're doing is get me through survival and come up with a fiscal recovery policy so I can, you know, launch myself back in 2021, hopefully when the vaccine comes, right? So we have this 2 billion heralded scheme, 44 million drawn down. It's not going to get much bigger. And we're back to this complex procedure of having to apply for a loan. I've gone through it. I've written cash flow plans. And then a week later, there'll be a policy change in government due to a worsening global crisis. That's ripped up. How can you write a cash flow plan if you don't know people can come in from the outside? So it's very difficult, but you have to continue to write cash flow plans. And, you know, you read about things like, there was a, the, the investment bank in Canada, I can't remember the exact name, you know, they were lending 100000 Canadian dollars within 48 hours. Yeah. You know, there are ways to do this, to get money to SMEs much, much quicker, whether you do it through the revenue or you bypass the pillar banks, or as you said on previous podcasts, we own AIB, you know, let's use AIB to do it. But there has to be a way of getting cash into our bank accounts, because the greatest fear is the inability to pay people and the knock-on effect, the contagion is huge. So we have to have money, our access to money. If the European government are saying you can borrow money at negative interest rates, why is it so challenging to get it to the SME sector? That's what I can't understand.
2: Well, that is actually the key issue, Flat. But finally, let's look forward, right? If businesses like yours survive, what do you see coming out of COVID? What do you see change in behavior? What do you see the way people go about their business, the way people live, the, the, the nature of cities, etc.?
1: Well, I think there's a shift. There's a micro macro. So on the macro side, you know, I think I, I would love to see a dedicated, almost like ministry for SME. I mean, the Australian set up a dedicated SME website and support line to aid SMEs, not through just the survival, but through recovery process. So we'd love to see some fiscal policies that, Got rid of this, you know, cumbersome red tape in terms of getting access to liquidity. And on 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 a very local micro level, there has been substantial changes in behaviour. So we see a local surge in the local economy, where dining out and having drinks and st- you know and working out of hotels will become more the norm. So we're reasonably upbeat that once we can get through COVID two, get through Christmas, vaccines coming, that we will actually have stronger income in the local in- economy than we had when we went into COVID one.
2: Well, you can be dependent, on fellows like John Davis here. who's obviously, As you know, when he opens his wallet, it is a deluge. It's a tsunami. The ripple effect. It's a tsunami. It's, it's two Christmas parties on their own on a Tuesday afternoon. They call me Mr.
1: Trickle Down. <laughs> <laughs> He's listen, in our business plan. But we might, we might listen, have to put him in there. Listen, Fla, it's
2: great to talk to you.
1: You too, lads. And best of luck with the podcast. Take cheers, care Cheers, Take care, thanks, for
2: Okay, so John, you heard lark Larkin. I know the Cork listeners will find it very amusing. <laughs> But you know what this means, John? Yeah. The whole point is let's stand back now. Let's take altitude. Let's rise above all those individual stories. Yeah. And see what it means from the top down. What it means is that we are going to go through an unnecessarily contraction of the economy when the ECB is actually saying you don't have to do this.
3: So actually the banks and the f- Minister of Finance are like financial anti-vaxxers.
2: They are. Remember we were talking? Yeah, they are. They're, they're reality deniers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That what we... Look, there's, there are a number of upsides in being in a monetary union. A number, right? Mm. The major one is that when the ECB comes in to support you, there's no exchange at risk. Like in the past... Governments would worry about doing something what they would regard as beyond the pale or outside of the playbook because we had our own currency, we had our own interest rates, and if we didn't get it right, the currency would be sold, interest rates would go through the roof, nobody would support us, etc. Now the ECB says, you're part of the gang, you're one of us, we're going to give you all this money, do what you need to do. And what... And you can see I'm getting pissed off about this. What, yeah. what angers me is that, rightly so, Mac. There does not seem to me to be anyone deep in the government or the central bank that understands the opportunity that the ECB is giving us, and the ultimate implication of this. And it comes back to our idea of skin in the game. Yeah, yeah. Is the people who will lose out are hoteliers, publicans, restaurateurs private individuals who have skin in the game and the bureaucrats who make these decisions and are not prepared to actually be radical, they will still get paid next Monday or the Monday after. And ultimately, ultimately, what you see is the people who take risk pay and the people who don't take risks get paid.
3: Do you know what we should do? Let's just finish off with some of that golden voice
2: okay right so Lucy's next single is the acoustic version of the last one Runaway it's a fantastic song and she just released it yesterday so here it is Lucy McWilliams Runaway
0: sometimes